Welcome to the inaugural episode of Where They At. Uh, this show features uh, retired athletes that are doing uh, wonderful things after their careers, as well as athletes that have done amazing things, not just on the field, but have made an impact uh, with the uh, dynamic of sports and society. And it's my pleasure to have uh, on the inaugural episode, and it's fitting to have number one on the inaugural episode, uh, the man that that has really um, stood the test of time from the standpoint of um, revolutionizing the quarterback position as an African-American, but also, too, as a great passer, a great passer and a great athlete. Uh, this man is uh, actually a ductee, 2006 inductee to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He was the first black quarterback to be inducted as well as the first undrafted quarterback to be inducted he was the 1989 walter payton man of the year he was the 1990 offensive player of the year nine-time pro bowler and uh, this man was the first man to pass for over 70,000 yards in professional football it is my pleasure to introduce the one and only mr warren moon how are you sir I am great today. Happy holidays to you. And I, I'm, I'm honored to be the uh, first guest on your show. And I'm, I'm sure it's going to be just one of many, many more great interviews you're going to do down the road. Oh, I appreciate you, sir. And and it was a pleasure. Me, I remember we met face to face at the 2011 ESPN pre-draft party. And um, it was it was great just because you were one of my favorite athletes growing up because you represented class as well as skill set. You had those dimensions. And uh, the first question I wanted to ask you, um, growing up in Los Angeles, um, your father passed away when you were seven and um, you were raised by your mother and you also grew up with six sisters. Um, you know, talk about how did your childhood shape who you are today, not just professionally, but personally? Yeah, it had a lot to do with uh, the way my my uh, upbringing uh, shaped up only because I, I took on such a, uh, a mature manly role at seven years old if you can believe that when your father passes away you're the only male figure in the house all of a sudden now your mother tells you uh, that you're the man of the house now and i literally i took that literally when she said that because uh all of a sudden now i felt like i had to protect my mom i had to protect my sisters and uh, i had to take on a little bit more responsibility as far as things my dad used to do whether it was making sure the trash was put out for the trash man on the right day or, or mm -hmm. just different things like that, that, that he was always uh, responsible for. Now I had to take on that responsibility at seven years old. So I grew up a lot faster probably than I should have and probably didn't enjoy my childhood as much as I probably should have just because of, of the, uh, the responsibility I felt inside of me. It's not something that anybody put pressure on me. It was pressure I put on myself to uh, make sure I could live up to the responsibility that, that I was seeing in front of me. So it definitely did shape my, uh, my childhood. And as I, as I grew up through my childhood, I became that way with a lot of my friends. You know, they, they looked at me and called me Daddy Warren a lot of times, or they called me Pops or, or things like that at, at a very, very young age. I'm a teenager and they're calling me Pops because I was always reminding everybody what to do right and what not to do wrong and things like that. So, um, it, it did have a lot of effect on me as I as I went forward in my life. What happened to me at a very very early age? Wow! And playing the quarterback position—that's all about leadership. That's all about people leaning on you. And um, and and the thing is that you being called pops, people, you're a leader of men as the quarterback. And I wanted to ask you which athletic or public figures, leaders that 
influenced you when you were growing up that you emulated? Well, obviously, um, you know, our president at the time when I was a young kid was was John F. Kennedy, and, and my mother was a huge fan of his, and I, I gravitated towards that because that was her politics, and and uh, we had one TV in our house, so we, that's what we listened to, we, and uh, mm -hmm. that's whatever my mom watched, that's what we watched, and that's what kind of influenced our uh, our belief system. Uh, of course, Martin Luther King mm -hmm. uh, Jr. My mother went to school with him. Actually, she was at Spelman when he was at uh, Morris Brown, and she got a chance to know him there. So obviously, he was a an impact because she told me different stories about him. And then, and then you go into sports, and um, you know, I was a quarterback. You know, when I became 11 years old, so Roman Gabriel was the quarterback right. of the Rams at that time, and he was a, an Indian and. Mm -hmm. So he was a minority, and I looked at him as somebody that, that I could kind of identify with, that maybe one day if I did what I was supposed to do, I'd have a chance to play professional football because you had a minority playing quarterback right there in the city where I was living, uh, along with Jimmy Jones, who was a quarterback at USC at that time. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, also, O.J. Simpson was a guy that I really admired because he was at USC at that time, winning a Heisman Trophy, mm -hmm. uh, running for national championships, uh, a guy that uh, went on and became a, a huge uh, sports celebrity before, you know, he ran into his, his uh, the troubles that he went into in his life. But as a young kid, I think everybody looked up to O.J. Simpson. Wow. And um, it was interesting how you were known to be bossy. You were known to be stubborn. And that really helped you out playing the quarterback's position, especially as you went to Hamilton High School, especially as you were part of the great Baldwin Hills youth football. Like, talk about that, how that made you the quarterback that you became. Yeah, I, I, I think it's more I just had a lot of confidence in myself. And um, I never really I never really said something that, that I didn't really feel like was right uh, because I, maybe I had experienced it, maybe because I just knew it from a, from the meaning of the actual word or the meaning of the actual phrase or whatever it was. I, I wasn't just wanting to be right all the time just to be right. I usually, I usually was when I had something to say. And if I wasn't right or if I didn't have the answer, I would ask somebody for the answer. I wasn't one of those guys that felt like I knew everything. Right. And I was a very coachable player as far as any of the sports that I was in. Always wanted to learn as much more as I possibly could. Um, I read a lot about sports. So I, I knew uh, sports inside and out as, as well as, you know, in the classroom, I did the same thing. But if there was something I was was feeling strongly about, I definitely had a strong opinion about it. So that, that was kind of, you know, my personality. And, and I think one of the reasons why I gravitated towards the quarterback position is because a lot of guys – didn't want to deal with the responsibility of being a quarterback. And, mm. and because I was raised with that responsibility around the house, I didn't have any problems with, with wanting to do the things that a quarterback was going to be asked to do, which was lead a football team, which was uh, be able to make the, the big decisions at the right times to be able to get the guys to, to, uh, uh, to motivate guys, to get them to play, you know, with it, within one goal, all those different things that come along with, with playing quarterback. And then I was blessed with a very good arm at a very young age and that, and that helped as well. So you combine all those things together. Uh, that was the position that I wanted to play in football because I didn't shy away from the responsibility of the position. Wow. And we're talking with Warren Moon on an inaugural episode of Where They At. Uh, Pro Football Hall of Famer Warren Moon. Uh, so Warren, now you go to the University of Washington. 
you went to junior college for a little bit, and then you went to UW. To yeah, um, I had to go to junior college because yeah. I couldn't get recruited by any of the big schools to to play a quarterback or go to any of the, the passing schools that, that would want to take advantage of my arm. So I went to junior college for a year to uh, kind of help get some more opportunities, get some more uh, more schools looking at me, and, and, and it worked for, for the one year that I went there. Exactly, and 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 you and Don James, like who coached for he coached Jack Lambert at Kent State, then went on to coach for UW into the '90s. You know, led them to a near national title in the early '90s. So he had that he had foresight, right? You would think because he was able to last that long as a coach. Talk about that foresight and how he put you in that position to succeed as a black quarterback. Yeah, he, he put the University of Washington on the map. Um, him and our in our program. The years that I came in when we went to the Rose Bowl, that kind of put us on the map. And then after that, they just kind of took off and became one of the top programs in the country, winning a national championship in 91 mm -hmm. and winning another one and uh, going to several Rose Bowls, winning many Pac-10 and Pac-12 championships. So he was a, a guy that was very influential in my life because he believed in me that I could play quarterback at a very high level. And um, uh, that's something that I – I really uh, always respected about him that he saw the talent in me. Yes. And then we went through some very tough times in my first year at the University of Washington as we tried to rebuild the program. Uh, a lot of people were were calling for me to you know to be benched. Uh, a lot of a lot of ugliness came out in the stands as far as booing and name calling and all those different things. And he stuck there with me because he believed in me. And he had a system within our our program that if if you you got graded out every day in practice and if you didn't grade out to a certain a certain percentage then if there was somebody that was grading out higher than you you were going to get replaced and it didn't matter what position you played but i was always the one grading out highest at the, at the quarterback position so he went through by his grading system he didn't care about what people were saying outside he didn't care about what alumni said or nothing he knew that i was the best player on our football team for that position and he kept me there and the rose bowl um, it culminated with you winning your high school championship at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. And then four years later, you win the Rose Bowl, <laughs> you know, the actual Rose Bowl against Michigan. How exciting was that to be able to show that you were an elite player in this in the stadium that you, you know, weren't really seen at as an elite player? Yeah, more so than anything was I used to watch that Rose Bowl every year as a young kid growing up and, and we couldn't afford for me to go. Uh, I went to the parade a few times, sat out on the street and watched the parade go by. Um, but other than that, not being able to go to the game, I used to watch it on television. I used to dream of maybe one day being able to play in that game because it was always, it seemed like USC was in it, uh, Stanford a couple of times, UCLA a few times. Jim Plunkett, who you love, Jim Plunkett, Stanford. When, yeah, mm -hmm. and yep. then, you know, I watched guys like, uh, you know, Cornelius Green from Ohio State come in there, an African-American quarterback. And I was I, I was just amazed by by the pageantry of that game. Uh, it was always a beautiful sunny day in that backdrop uh, in Pasadena. And again, to 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 be able to play in that game and watch it start with a beautiful sunny day, and then it ends. You know, as the lights are coming on, the sun's going down behind those mountains, and and to you know to see who ends up being the the winner and also the MVP it was it was something mm -hmm. as a, a kid growing up in LA, you always wanted to be able to play in it. So to be able to leave go to another school outside of the state and then be able to come back and play in that game. Uh, you're talking about one of the highlights of my career.
1978, Warren, um, you were not drafted in the NFL draft. And uh, it was actually Lee Steinberg, who became your agent, believed in you. Um, And of course, we know Lee Steinberg is one of the greats ever. It's funny. That 1978 draft, there were 14 quarterbacks drafted. None of them made a Pro Bowl. You ended up making nine of them. And you ended up going to the CFL, and it was a blessing in disguise that you weren't drafted. Am I right? It really was only because nobody had my rights. Um, So once we got the information, you know, Lee was doing his due diligence on me and with different teams and organizations, and most of them were saying they either weren't going to draft me at all, or if I did get drafted, I was going to be drafted maybe at another position, wide receiver, defensive back, something I'd never really played before, a little bit in high school. But um, when the opportunity to go play in Canada came about, I had to sit down and and kind of measure the pros and cons of of what would be the best move for me. Because, again, I was a young kid growing up in the United States, and my dream was to play in the NFL like every other kid that wanted to play football. But here – the NFL wasn't going to give me that opportunity, but the Canadian Football League, a place that I didn't know very much about, I knew some of the guys that had gone up there to play, but I didn't know much about the league. They wanted me very, very badly and uh, were, were offering me the financial package to come up there and the, and the chance to play quarterback. So it was a very tough decision for me to make, but I had to make the decision earlier because their season started earlier. So. Uh, July, that's July. Why, that's why I signed mm-hmm. in in uh, six weeks before the NFL draft. Mm-hmm. So I gave up my my chance, not really to be drafted, but I figured hopefully I don't get drafted because if I ever wanted to come back, and just and this was Lee's strategy because I didn't really understand it at that time, that I would be a true free agent. And there wasn't a free agency in football at that time, so if I could be a free agent and pick where I wanted to come and play, the right situation where when you go in the draft, you never know what's going to happen to you. It would be a great situation for me. So once I signed in Canada, most guys would be wanting to get drafted on NFL draft day. I'm one of those guys going, please, nobody draft me. I don't want to be drafted. And it was it was a, a, a weird situation because of, like I said, growing up, you always dreamed of being drafted and going to an NFL team. But I just knew it wasn't going to happen that way for me just because of the way teams felt about me. Wow, we're um, here with Warren Moon on the inaugural episode of Where They At. Pro Football Hall of Famer number one, the one and only Warren Moon. And Hugh Campbell, uh, he saw a lot in you when you signed with the Edmonton Eskimos. And he called you the Jackie Robinson of football, but he also said how the NFL does racial profiling. And that's a term that we hear a lot, especially in this day and age. But he was another person ahead of his time in seeing not just your ability, but seeing that you know, it's all about the skill set at the end of the day and the leadership capabilities. Talk about how special Hugh Campbell was for you and how you guys were able to win five straight championships. I mean, that's elite uh, concentration, focus, and excellence. <laughs> well, that's a common theme that uh, you've been talking about throughout this interview is is people believing in me, mm-hmm. having people believe in you. My high school coach, Jack Epstein, believed in me. That's yes. why I got a chance to play quarterback work where as a sophomore, my coach didn't believe in me, uh, my sophomore coach. And then you go to to University of Washington, Don James believes in you and he gives you that chance. And then Hugh Campbell comes in and believes in you and gives you an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And he again, he thought I could play big time football. He thought that I could be that 
that uh, that next big piece in it because the, uh, the starting quarterback in Edmonton, a guy by the name of Tom Wilkinson, who teached me a lot about the league when I went up there, mm-hmm. uh, he was going to be retiring soon because he was like 36 years old at the time. So I was going to step in and be that guy. And and that's exactly how it played out. I, I, I uh, bided my time, didn't play a whole lot my first year, but I did play quarterback and I was on a championship team. And then we went on to win, you know, five championships in a row, like you said. And and uh, you don't really realize how special that is until your career is over and you look back at it and, and see if how many teams in any sport have been able to do that over, over a period of time. Maybe the Boston Celtics in basketball or or maybe the Montreal Canadiens, I think, in, in hockey at one, right. at one point. But it just doesn't the happen. Yankees, the Yankees, too. Especially, especially in this day and age that mm-hmm. uh, teams just don't stay together long enough to be able to have that, that type of uh, consistency and and in uh, success. So to be a part of something like that is something I can remember the rest of my life. And and uh, the guys that played on those teams with me, we, we will always have that special bond together. Wow. And uh, it was between the Houston Oilers and the Seattle Seahawks for your rights uh, in 1984 um, for, for you to join them as this as the starting quarterback. It was it was funny with um, Seattle. You said in your book, Seattle was the better team. But Houston made better sense, C E N T S. So, and that 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 is a great great um term. But but talk about the CFL, how the rules of the CFL helped you be able to go right into the NFL and give you an advantage. And and talk about Hugh Campbell being able to join Houston and bring you on on to uh, to the Oilers and the adjustment period for you as well. Yeah, in, in, in the CFL, the game is so much faster. You know, you, you have only three downs, so the passing game is much more important because of that one less down to work with. Uh, you have a wider field, you have a longer field, so you better have a strong arm if you're going to throw the ball, especially from the pocket on that wide field. A lot of those cities have a lot of wind up there because of the wind on that prairie, so you better be able to throw the ball and cut into that wind as well. So all those things helped me when I came back to the NFL because I didn't have any problems playing in bad weather because I played in bad weather a lot of times in the playoffs up in Canada. Um, I just loved the way the game was played. It was a lot faster as far as the the uh, the, the time in between plays. The whole the whole game was almost like a hurry up game up there, and that's what the NFL game has now now kind of become. We were more of a spread offense back then, and that's what the NFL has eventually become as well. That's right. When I was put into the run and shoot offense, it was something that I, I felt very comfortable with because I had done a lot of that up in Canada. I threw the ball on the run. I threw the ball from the pocket. I threw it in play action. So I had a lot of different versatility to my game. And I think that's one of the reasons why wherever I went in the league, it didn't matter what offense you put me in. I was going to be uh, pr- productive in it because I could do a lot of different things. You know, I wasn't a Lamar Jackson as far as my athleticism <laughs> or my predict, but I could move around enough and I could run when I needed to. But I also threw the ball as well as anybody. So there was a lot of versatility to what I could do. And, and that's right. You can dance in that pocket. You had great footwork, you know, being able to shift a little bit to your left or to your right to be able to make that throw. And and uh, kind of use Aikido against those defensive linemen, you know, to kind of like, you know, take their aggression, you know, put their aggression against them. Um, well, I, I did most of my running when I was in Canada. I felt I found out very quickly in the NFL, you better stay in the pocket as long as you can and, and become a distributor because 
once they see a, a quarterback outside the pocket, those defensive linemen's eyes get really big and they want to, they want to tee off on you. And, mm-hmm. and that's the thing I worry about with, with Lamar Jackson right now, that he's doing some great things. He's uh, he's an amazing player, but I, I just worry about how long this is going to be sustained, mm-hmm. uh, what he's doing as far as how much he carries the football and how physical uh, a beating he might take over a period of the next couple of years. Yeah, and that's what happened to Robert Griffith III. You know, prime example, you know. Exactly. Um, and, and Michael Vick. Mm-hmm, that's right. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Lamar Jackson later on in the show. Uh, I have this question for you. The adversity that you went through in Houston. First of all, Hugh Campbell was fired. Jerry Glanville replaced him. Jerry Glanville and you did not see eye to eye. Um, Jerry Glanville was someone that, you know, that you had to deal with a lot of, uh, a lot of personality clashes with him. Um, but also, too, the the crowd of the Houston, the city of Houston, it took them a long time to embrace you. How were you able to deal with all of that adversity, you know, and be able to hold your head high, be able to be even keel through that time? The pressures of being a black quarterback, the highest paid player in the league as well. Talk about how that weighed on you. Yeah, you know. It was something that I guess I, I learned from my mom, the way she handled the adversity that we uh, re- dealt with when my dad passed away when I was seven, uh, the way she handled our family. You know, a mom, and all of a sudden she's got seven kids and and uh, she's got to make things happen. And, and the way she handled that, she didn't panic. She didn't, you didn't see a lot of crying or, or, or woe is me type of attitude. She just, she just buttoned up her, uh, buttoned up her coat and went to work and, uh, she went back to school. She became a private duty nurse. Uh, she always had hot food on the table for us, always clean clothes. Our house was immaculate, even though we live in a small two bedroom house. Uh, and even to this day, I'm OCD because of her. Mm-hmm. It has a, everything has a place for it because that's the way I was raised. So just watching her, the way she handled that. And then the, me having dealt with some of that racism and things in college when I was 18, 19 at the University of Washington, I knew when I went down to Houston, it wasn't going to be easy early because we didn't have a very good football team. It was a two and 14 team the year before we got there. Mm-hmm. I knew it was going to take a while to, to uh, build the football team through the draft and also bring in the right free agents before uh, we were going to be successful. So I was kind of ready for what, what to expect. Plus I knew I was going to the South and, and in the South, mm-hmm. uh, not going to be able to make everybody happy. There's a lot of, a lot of uh, bigotry down there and, and uh, a lot of racism. So being prepared for it all was was something that helped me get through it. The biggest problem I had with it was what my kids had to deal with it. Because when I was in college, now I, w- I wasn't married and have children. But now all of a sudden you have a family and you have kids in the stadium and they, they're exposed to this or they're exposed yeah. to it at school, you know, because kids hear what their parents say and they repeat it at school. So that's the that's the biggest education I had to try and and um, and deal with was making sure they understood what we were dealing with as a family and that it wasn't a reflection on them um, and that there were people out there that didn't always agree with with who I was and, and what I was doing but we couldn't let that affect what we wanted to do as a family and I also had a great relationship with my church uh, in Houston. Yes, uh, yes. John Caldwell was my was my uh, minister. Uh, we prayed every uh, every Sunday morning before the games. We uh, prayed throughout the week, and uh, we had a really great relationship. So, so my spirituality, which my mother instilled in me at a very young age as well, was something that helped me through that whole process. 
Were you ever in touch with George Foreman? Because at that time, George Foreman was a minister himself. And, he, you know, he retired from boxing early to really, yeah. and he saved himself and became a different person. Did you ever speak with him? Because he was in the Houston area. I met him many times when I was in Houston, but we never talked, uh, you know, anything about religion or anything like that. He just always said he was praying for me. And I told him the mm -hmm. same thing and, and loved the way he came through, um, you know, all the adversity that he went through in his life as well. But yes. My main relationship was with uh, Kirby John Caldwell. Mm, wow. And uh, and I, I refer to your book, uh, Never Give Up on Your Dream, My Journey. That's Warren Moon's uh, uh, biography, his autobiography. Please check that out. It's very inspirational for all of you to, to, to read it. You will be inspired with his story and what he went through. And, um, and going back to OCD, <laughs> your OCD, like... You know, your mom mentioned about clutter. You hate clutter, which, you know, that I wish I had that quality because I'm opposite, unfortunately, of that. Um, but but also another thing, how your teammates talked about how you precisely, uh, sh you know, you were able to get your nails at the right length. Like, talk <laughs> about how you stuck to your guns of being OCD as a leader because, like you said, people don't agree with you, but you stuck to your guns and you didn't waver. How hard of how hard was that in the professional ranks to, to do that and to maintain that? You know, it really wasn't that hard because what I did was I got myself into a, a, a regimen or a routine, and I, and I stuck to that routine. And, and if anything, I just tried to improve on it each and every year um, no matter what it was, whether it was my diet, whether it was my workouts, um, whatever it is that I was doing to try and make my, um, my play better, uh, I would always sit down in the off season and, and, and go through what I could do to improve. What, what areas did I need to improve on in my body? What areas did I need to improve on in my game? Um, and that's just kind of the way I've always been very regimented again, because I learned a lot of that by the way, my mother ran our, our household, um, she was she was really big on on uh, on your hygiene on on the way you looked and the way you carried yourself. So you know my nails had a lot to do with that. I kept my nails trimmed. I I, I worried about different things like that and making sure I had haircuts, and making sure I was groomed properly. She she expect inspected me every morning before I went to school. So I had wow. everything right. You brush your teeth. Did you do this? Did you do that? So I, I grew up that way. So this was an easy thing for me to do once I got to that age. And and because I, I started throwing the football, you know, with my nails a certain length, that's where I got my success from. So when the nails weren't that length, I had to get them that way in order to to to, uh, to feel comfortable about when I, where I was throwing the ball and how I was throwing the ball. So I, I remember in a game one time my nail was was not acting right and the ball wasn't spinning the way I wanted it to. I called a timeout in the game to go over to the sideline to get a nail foul and file my nail down just a little bit more so that ball would spin the way I wanted it to spin. And and if it wasn't spinning the way I didn't want it, I mean the way I wanted it to, I thought it was something wrong with the ball. It couldn't have been nothing wrong with me. You know, I'd take the ball and I'd throw it up in the air to see if it was warped or something like that because uh, I knew how to throw a, a very good football and a very catchable football. And I think that was one of the things most receivers that played with me throughout the course of my career, no matter where I played, they loved the type of ball that I threw. Wow, we're here with Warren Moon on the inaugural episode of Where They At. And um, Weird story. Warren. <laughs> there are so and, many and, people that are intrigued by my fingernail story. It's amazing. 
Uh, yeah, no, I it's intriguing, and and that's the thing because with myself, I play music, you know, professionally. So there are those little things that are very important. You have to have that routine exactly. to be able to execute your craft. You know, that's important. No, that's deep. That's really. I, had, I was to the point where when I got dressed before every game, everything was done in the same order every week. You know, with even the order I put my pads in my pants. You know the. The the, the, wow. the knee pad went in first in the right knee pad, and the left thigh pad in the right thigh pad. There was never any de- deviation from that. So you can call it superstition, or you can call it repetition, or you can call it just a routine. But uh, I did everything the right the same way. That right down to what I ate before before a game, the type of list, music I listened to in my headphones, all of it. Mm-hmm. Now the success of the Houston Oilers. Coincidentally, you got your first playoff win in eighty the eighty seven season against the Seattle Seahawks. Yeah. Where you know that's uh, that's interesting, ironic, and then uh, the Oilers throughout the years, you you were able to really build a receiving core like you know Haywood Jeffries, Drew Hill, Ernest Givens, uh, it's Curtis Duncan. Those guys were really excelling with you at the helm. But that ninety two team that went into Buffalo, you had nine pro bowlers. That was the I have to tell you a story. Like I, I grew up an Oilers fan because of you. I'm gonna be straight up and down. Really? You know, I grew up an Oilers fan because of you, because of the trend that you were setting and, and how you represented being a black quarterback, being a star. And I remember that day, that Sunday, I was practicing my trumpet and I was watching the game. I saw that Bubba Dowell, Bubba McDowell, excuse me, interception, that pick six, 35 to three. I was like, all right, all right, it's, it's, it's cool. It's done, it's done. And then I turn off the TV to practice. I would turn it on. The score got closer and closer. Buffalo's coming back. I was like, what, what, what's going on? Like, I literally cried after that game, to be honest. I'm being serious because I, want- I wanted to see you get to that moment of making a Super Bowl, and that was the best team. Um, and, I, now, and I think that team was good enough to win a Super mm. Bowl. We had beaten uh, we had beaten Buffalo the week before, believe it or not, in the in our, our, uh, our final that's right. game in Houston. And then we had to play them again in the wild card game. And we had beaten the Dallas Cowboys. We ended up winning the Super Bowl that year. We had beaten them during the regular season. So we knew we were a really good football team. But, uh, that's what made that day so disappointing. Wow, and 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 it was very and ironic that James Lofton, your teammate back in Baldwin Hills youth football, was on that Buffalo Bills team. Now, um, what did James say to you? What did you did you guys discuss it? Discuss what happened afterwards? Like, you know, we never we never really talked about that game very much afterwards. I'm sure he knew I didn't want to talk about it. Um, Andre Reed, who also was a really good friend of mine on that team. Uh, that had a great game that day. Uh, we we talked about it a few different times throughout the year because he played in a bunch of Pro Bowls with me. And that's right. And mm-hmm. uh, I think I played in a Pro Bowl with him that particular year after they lost the Super Bowl. So they didn't want to they didn't want to talk very much about anything as well because they had gotten beat in the Super Bowl and had to come to the Pro Bowl the next day after mm-hmm. that game. So if if there was any trash talking to be made, they weren't going to trash talk me after they had lost the Super Bowl because I would have had some good trash talking to come back at them. <laughs> but um, uh, what a disappointing day and, and something that I, I always uh, get reminded of by different people because it was such a great game to watch, I guess. And, and um, there's nobody to blame but ourselves for not getting that done. And 
And I always look at it myself as what more could I have done that day to, to make sure we had won that football game. We just we just became too passive in the second half and we played not to lose as opposed to try and win. We didn't keep being aggressive the way we were in the first half offensively and definitely not defensively. Our defense was doing things, attacking and, and, and creating turnovers and doing things that that uh, Buffalo had no answers for. But in the second half, we went to a more passive type of prevent defense defense and oh, they were able to exploit it so yeah uh, like i said we have nobody to 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 blame but ourselves and uh that's one of those times when you don't have many chances to get to a super bowl and that was one time we definitely let get away now your time in houston you know you're the all-time leading passer still to this day am i right yeah all-time leading passer um and and you're the greatest quarterback to play in that organization and um they were relying on Cody Carlson. They wanted Cody Carlson to take your place. But it's very funny. You said, uh, I, I believe you said to, to the front office of Houston saying, I'm going to play longer than Cody. And then you ended up being a Pro Bowler in Minnesota, two years. Then Seattle, your ninth Pro Bowl appearance in Seattle, coincidentally, and winning the MVP. And you that know, motivation, you know, that drive. I didn't talk say about that, that to our general manager as a slight against Cody. But, mm-hmm, but, right. but their, their thinking was, okay, you're 37, 38 years old at that time. How much longer can you keep playing at this level? Um, I had just won another Pro Bowl. We had just won 12 games that, that particular year. Um, I had one of my best seasons, but because of contracts at that particular time and the salary cap was coming into play that particular year, they knew they weren't going to be able to keep both of us because they had signed Cody to a pretty nice deal prior to that. So Business-wise, it made sense for them. And then also, I guess, looking at the ages, uh, it, it made sense. But I just told him, look, I, I know what my body feels like right now. I know how, how good I'm still playing. I just think I'm going to play longer. And that's that's basically it. It was nothing about I'm going to play better or anything like that. It was about don't get rid of me because you think I'm not going to be able to play much longer because I'm, I'm going to surprise you that way. Wow. And uh, fast forward into you making the Pro Football Hall of Fame 2006. Um, it's funny, Dan Fouts said this, pro, fellow Hall of Famer, he said the Super Bowl is a year, but the Hall of Fame is a career. Both you and Dan, unfortunately, never made the Super Bowl, were a part of great teams, but Hall of Fame is a career. How much of a weight off your shoulders for not just yourself, but for future black quarterbacks to be able to give in that chance and see that, that show that they can be excellent. How much of a weight off your shoulders you felt that weekend when you were giving your speech in Canton, Ohio? You know, it wasn't so much of a, of a weight off my shoulders. It was, um, it was more of just a culmination of everything that I had gone through in my career to get to this point that, you know, starting all the way back in high school. Again, when I talked to you about my sophomore coach not believing in me, and I was third team on my sophomore team, um, not knowing that I would, how far I'd be able to go in this game. Um, and then all the different uh, hardships you had to go through to get to, to get a scholarship, going to junior college, uh, you know, having to send my own film out to different schools because my junior college coach wanted me to stay a, a second year and I didn't want to stay. So I had to kind of sneak around and, and try and create opportunities for me to get recruited. Uh, then going to the University of Washington, doing all the things that I did there, not getting a chance to be drafted uh, 
as a quarterback and then having to go to Canada, playing in another country when you're watching everybody on television that you feel like you're just as good as play the quarterback position. So all that stuff just kind of came at me all in all the different, uh, you know, tough situations I had to deal with, with crowds, with, with fans, with death threats and all those different things that all just came back at me um, on that particular day that, it was all worth it. You know, you, you never know when you're going through all of that, is this really worth it? But when you get to a pinnacle, like being selected in the pro football hall of fame, it, it makes it all worth it. And it, it also uh, reflects well on the other African-American quarterbacks that played before me, who were mentors of mine, uh, who played during my time, Doug Williams winning a Super Bowl, Randall Cunningham playing the way that he did during the time that I played. I felt like all those guys deserved a little bitty piece of, of that uh, of that award because they were all guys that I looked up to, guys that I uh, aspired to be successful as well, and I just felt like we were all in that together. Uh, we're talking with the great Warren Moon, Pro Football Hall of Famer, on their inaugural episode of Where They At, and Warren, you the all the adversity, all the obstacles you went through. Um, you talk about in your book, and your book is called Never Give Up on Your Dream, My Journey, which came out in 2010. Um, you talked about going to therapy and how there are a lot of people that do not admit that publicly. You know, I, I've been to therapy for a few years myself. You know, I, I have no shame of admitting that because you need someone to talk to, especially when you go through a lot of different things and struggles and, and being able to function in what you want to do and your goals. Um, but, but talk about how therapy, even through the adversity you've gone through uh, after your career, you know, a couple of things that have happened um, and everything, uh, you know, off the field, uh, how therapy really gave you a chance to unleash everything and how those things culminated from when you were younger to now and, and talking and how you, you know, encourage others to do the same thing. Yeah, you know, I was a guy, and you talked about it earlier. How did you? How were you able to be so calm and be so cool through all the adversity that you dealt with? Well, that's how I dealt with it. I I internalized a lot of it. I mm -hmm. uh, I didn't talk to anybody about it. Um, I just tried to to uh, what my therapist called compartmentalize a lot of it. You put it up in little different parts of your brain, and you don't deal with it, and, and move on to the next thing. And and I was able, I was really good at that. And most men are, are pretty good at, at doing that from what I understand, but I was really good at it. And, and because of the things that I was dealing with compared to most people and, um, and, and because you, you don't deal with those things, that doesn't mean they don't, they go away. That means they're still inside of you and they're, and they're boiling inside of you. So uh, when I finally got to the point where I wanted to go to therapy, I wanted to find out more about who I was as the person and, and what made me tick and what made me do the things that I do. And, and uh, having somebody that I could talk to that I could really trust was something that was very important because one thing that men don't like to do is, is admit they're vulnerable or, or they or admit weakness or anything like that. So they don't want to talk to other guys or, or talk to other people about different uh, weaknesses they might have. Well, when I was able to find somebody uh, in Seattle, when I was there in Minnesota, when I was there, that's where I first started in, in Minnesota. Uh, I found some people that I could really trust and really sit down and talk to and get things off my chest. And it all started way back in my childhood from the day my dad passed away. And, 
and, and it works all the way up through through your life, all the different uh, circumstances that you deal with. So it was very, very refreshing for me to be able to get all of that out. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book that I wrote. It was another way of, of getting things out of me that I had never shared with people all those all those years. You know, the, the, my kids never knew that that uh, my life was threatened that many times when I was playing and, and they were all you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. I, I never told my wife about some of the stuff that, that I had to deal with uh, just because I didn't want to worry anyone. I didn't tell my mom about stuff like that. So they found out a lot of that when they read the book. So um, it was just a great uh, opportunity for me to, to go inside of myself and let a lot of things out that I had been holding inside for a long time. That's deep. That's deep. And um, being a black quarterback, uh, you um, created the field generals uh, with Doug Williams, Randall Cunningham, James Harris, pioneer with the Rams, as we all know, Marlon Briscoe, of course, uh, pioneer with the Bills. Um, yeah. And you mentor black quarterbacks to this day. Um so how how is the how is that going to field generals and 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 especially we see an emergence of quarterbacks we have the top five quarterbacks in the NFL based on QBR are all black Lamar Jackson Patrick Mahomes Dak Prescott Russell Wilson Deshaun Watson um, that um, that tutelage of of you guys collectively have really helped them become the quarterbacks they've become right. You know, I think so, and, and uh, a lot of those guys are aware of who we are. Um, the game has kind of changed to the point to where their style of play really helps uh, with the way the game is being played today. And uh, mm -hmm. not only are these guys tremendous athletes, and we've always had a lot of tremendous athletes at the quarterback position, but these guys are really, really good passers. I mean, these guys are 65% in, in uptight passers to go along with the, the athleticism they have to be able to create plays with their legs, to be able to buy time with their legs, to be able to get outside the pocket and run as well. But the, but it all comes down to their really good passers. Lamar Jackson, I mean, he's a good passer. I mean, he, they're not doing a lot of exotic things with him throwing the ball, but the things they're doing him with, he's being very, very successful with it. So um, that's why these guys are having success. One, because they're tremendous athletes. Two, because they're very, very hard workers. Three, because they've, they've tried to develop themselves as pastors from a very young age or going all the way back to high school. And uh, now you've got teams that are going to devote their offense to what these guys can do as opposed to it used to be you come in as a player, you better adapt to what we're doing here or you're not going to play or you're not going to make our football team. Now you're seeing them take these guys and say, okay, this is what Lamar Jackson does well. We're going to create an offense that takes advantage of that. We're going to bring in the personnel that takes advantage of that. And that's going to be our philosophy. And you never saw that before. It was always trying to take one of us and put us a round peg into a square hole. And it, ah, and it didn't brilliantly work. said. <laughs> yep. Didn't work. Mm -hmm. So now they're putting that round peg into a round hole because that round hole is created by what they see that quarterback can do. And that's why these guys are having so much success. Now, speaking of another black quarterback, James, James Winston, Tampa Bay, gun, true gunslinger, to say the least. Um, and, you know, he's been up and down as a player, but has a lot of talent. But he's exciting to watch, too. Do you think he's 
good for the game and for the position? And, and is it good for the quarterback position for entertainment factor of the league and everything? Yeah, you know, I love Jameis's game. I love his his uh, his personality. Um, I love his work ethic. Uh, I just feel like he takes too many risks sometimes, and it gets him in trouble turning the ball over. There's a lot of risk reward there, but when you're when you're having the, the uh the turnovers that's going to always show negatively especially if you're not winning those football games so when he when he finally figures out that i don't have to win every game and i don't have to win every play with every throw uh he's going to be a much more efficient quarterback because we all see the ability that he has because he throws a lot of touchdowns too and uh i i just think maybe he's at a point where there's a little bit more pressure on him in tampa that maybe he needs a different start he needs to go somewhere else where he can start over fresh not have that that same uh uh weight on his shoulders of being the number one overall pick and going into a city and trying to turn it around sometimes you need to go to a different place you look at ryan Tannehill right now he's he, he didn't do very well in miami but he goes to tennessee new address uh new fresh start and he's one of the top quarterbacks in the league over the last five or six weeks since he's taken over that job so sometimes you just need a, a new a new uh, environment, you know, new energy. And I think if, if Jameis gets that, I think he will really flourish because he's still a young, young guy. Colin Kaepernick, um, very polarizing name over the past three years or so. Um, and what is your take on how he handled his um, tryout for the NFL? And also, do you think that uh, he cannot be a distraction down the road if he comes back to the league what what is your take on colin yeah it, you, you hear so many different things about that workout as far as you know the, the waiver that the league wanted him to sign that he was that he didn't want to sign that that uh you know he, he pretty much had his own workout scheduled to 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 take place even though he knew the nfl workout was going to be at the atlanta uh falcons facility mm-hmm. uh, you know, he had t-shirts made up um, you know, f- for his own workout. So I don't know how much of it was o- was orchestrated and how much of it was was done at the last minute. But uh, whenever you're looking for an opportunity from somebody, sometimes you have to just go along with with what they uh, they ask for to get that opportunity. And and I always wonder how how important football really is to him. Does he really want to come back and play football? Because if you really want to play, you'll pretty much do anything to get yourself back on the field as long as you're not breaking any laws or, or breaking any rules. So um, that's my biggest question with Colin uh, through this whole thing, because I feel like the kneeling and what he did to bring awareness to, you know, police brutality and, and, uh, and to racism and, and, and racial injustice and all those different things was, was unbelievable. Uh, he got people to to uh, to look into it, to to make changes, to start raising money. You, you look around some of these these communities; that money is being put into place to to create uh, better relationships between the communities and police. All of that has been great, but now it's time for him to, if he wants to play football, now he's got to focus on football and and be the best football player that he can be. And and that's what it takes to be good in this league. You can't be having your your sights in a lot of other places. So uh, that's my biggest question with him. How much does he really want to play? How much of is it a burning desire? Or is this something that just keeps the uh, the other things going in his life 
by using the platform of football to keep, to keep those, uh, to, to keep that other light on him on the other things that he's trying to do. That, that's my biggest, uh, biggest question. And like I said, I don't know enough about everything that's going on on the insides. All I know is what I see on the outside, but he, he was a tremendous player when he was playing. Um, I still think he has some ability, but I think most teams do not want to bring a distraction into their football team. And that, that's one of the reasons why he's not on a team right now, I think, just like an Antonio Brown. As great a player as he is, they don't want to bring that that uh, distraction in there where it's going to create all this other media attention about something that has nothing to do with the football team. So um, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how great a player you are, you've got to kind of go along with the system a little bit in order in order to get back into the routine. Otherwise, you're not going to get the opportunity that you want. No, uh, that's a deep answer. We're here with Warren Moon, and one last thing, uh, uh, Mr. Moon, that we're gonna do. It's a segment called No Huddle, and um, I'm gonna give you some rapid questions uh, that will require like no more than one sentence to answer. No more than one sentence. All right, here we go. Here we go. Here's the first one. All right, advice that has resonated with you to this day, like a slogan that's resonated with you. I mean, I've always been into the Black Lives Don't Matter. A slogan because it's something that that uh, I've experienced and it's something that mm. we've made a lot of strides in but it's something that we still there still needs a lot of work to be done within our society from a lot of people wow. to, to show me that they, that our lives do matter yes sir yes sir the song that got you amped uh, like really amped before a game that one song <laughs> see <laughs> See, that's one of the things I didn't want to do before a game is get amped. <laughs> I'm a quarterback. I want to stay even killed. So I'm going to listen to, I'm going to, listen to jazz. I'm going to listen to things like that to keep me, like, really composed. Uh, your go-to play that worked to perfection most of the time. Uh, we had a play in uh, in Minnesota. It was uh, it was called scat, either right or left, depending on what formation was we were in. It was called Scat Dig Y Seam X Post. And I had a lot of different options on that play. And usually when I called it, it was a lot of times in the red zone, uh, there was going to be some some uh, some success on that play. That's right, either to Chris Carter or Jake Reed, right? Exactly. <laughs> Chris Carter on the route, Jake on the backside post. Yes, sir. Most eccentric teammate or opponent? Most eccentric teammate or opponent eccentric i could say crazy but eccentric is a better word to use <laughs> yeah uh probably mike rosier <laughs> <laughs> okay okay yeah great nebraska back houston and boy was he a piece of work i mean he had a he had a red mercedes benz with red rims on it and red tires <laughs> wow <laughs> Do you have a picture of that? You got to post I that know. on Instagram. <laughs> he, he was an amazing dude to this day. When you see Mike on the Heisman Trophy stage, you check Mike out. He, he's going to be dressed. He's going to be dressed a little differently. That's right. Cornhusker Red. <laughs> Most underrated NFL player that you feel that doesn't get the credit he deserves. Underrated. Uh I always thought when I played, Drew Hill was underrated just because mm -hmm. uh, he was a guy that I could depend on. I knew where he was, where he was going to be in all situations. Caught over 500 passes to me, ended up getting traded. But during his time when he was playing with me, I thought he was underrated. 
Wow. Now, who do you prefer, Brady or Peyton Manning? Because there have been more than one Manning in the NFL. So Brady or Peyton Manning? How do you go wrong with either one of those two guys? I mean, if, you, if you're talking about just winning, you got to go with Brady. But if you're talking about playing the quarterback position to the, to the, to the tilt, you got to go with Peyton Manning. So pick your poison. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I believe man in myself, you know, because four different Super Bowls with four different coaches, that tells you right there. Yeah. You know? <laughs> For sure. Now, uh, Edward Kennedy, Duke Ellington, or William James, Count Basie? Who you prefer to listen to? Which band? Big band. Probably the Duke. Okay. I like Duke Ellington. Yes, sir. Now, Willie Mays or Hank Aaron? You know, I was more of a Willie Mays fan because of his ability in the outfield as well as what he did at the plate. A little bit more complete player, could run the bases. There's no question Hammer and Hank could knock him out of there, but I just thought Willie was a better overall player. Well, and the last question here. Other than chocolate chip, which type of cookie will be the runner-up? Because we know about your cookies. So other than chocolate chip, which other cookie would you prefer? Um, I love the oatmeal raisin. But it, I loved it with a little bit of chocolate chip in it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. You can't, yes, from, indeed. can't get away from that chocolate. So, <laughs> for sure. I love for the sure. oatmeal-based cookie, definitely with the raisins in it. If it didn't have chocolate chips, it was fine. But if you, if you really wanted to jazz it up a little bit and add a little bit extra, put a little chocolate I'm a jazzician, and I loved reading your book talking about Billy Eckstein, Nat King Cole. Talk about that music and how it's important for the society to be educated on this music because it's it's not in the mainstream anymore. No, and, and it's something I learned from my dad. My dad was a huge, huge uh, fan of jazz and, and collected jazz albums, and I listened to it again because we had one stereo in the house. We didn't have Walkmans and all that different stuff when I was a young kid, so I, that's what I listened to. and. And you listen to that those stories uh, when they played that music. Those, those that music had a story to it, and it was, a lot of times it was about oppression. It was about uh, different struggles that you went through in life, so you could relate to that music. And and that's that's one of the reasons I loved it. Not only that the lyrics you could uh, relate to, but but the music and the jazz was just so smooth and uh, and relaxing. That's right. That's right. We can talk about jazz forever, sir. Like, we, we got to have that conversation, definitely, <laughs> for sure. Um, yeah, some talk about Clifford Brown, Dizzy, Fat Savara, all, you know, all that. <laughs> but uh, what, one more question. Album, you know, the first album I ever bought was Grover Washington Jr. Oh, okay. Was it with Mr. Magic on it? Mr. Magic, yeah, in high school. That was the first yes. album I ever bought on my own where I could afford to buy an album was, was Mr. Magic. Ooh. It's so tragic how Grover died. I yeah. met him actually a month before he passed away. Really? Actually. Yeah, which was re- it was really heartbreaking when he passed, you know. I went to school with Kenny G. He's from up here in Oregon and he went to University of Washington. Kenny Gorovich, right? Is I <laughs> pronounce his last name. <laughs> Your current ventures right now, what are you up to? I know you have Sports One Marketing, which is a very successful marketing company that you are president and co-founder of. Right. Uh, CBD as well. You know, you were at the conference. You talked about that in Las Vegas. Um, uh, you know, Sweet Earth is a company you are endorsing. Uh, yeah, please share with the audience how, you know, what your endeavors are right now and, and how that's really making you grow. Yeah, those are some of the things that I'm doing. I just started another, um, not myself, but the four of us, we just started a, a new scholarship program in Houston called Brothers in Arms. And it's basically because 
we as four brothers, Vince Young, who went to University of Texas, is from Houston. Andre Ware, first African-American right. quarterback to be a Heisman Trophy winner. Deshaun Watson, who's the current quarterback there at the Houston Texans, and myself and what I was able to do in the going to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. We started a, um, a, found a scholarship program because we all believe in education. We all are from the Houston area and have some ties to Houston. And we were all raised by single moms. So that's something mm. that we all had in common. And we put together this scholarship program and we were looking for kids that are, to apply for it that are involved in sports, that uh, are involved in their community because we want kids that, that are community minded and they have to come from a single family mom. So that's what we're doing right now. And we're going to um, award our first scholarships coming up at the Houston Sports Awards uh, in January. And we're looking forward to that being a big night for us and, and for this new, uh, this new foundation we started. So I'm doing that, but I also have my own foundation, the Crescent Moon Foundation, that basically does the same thing. And I've been doing that since 1989. Uh, as you said, I just partnered up with uh, Sweet Earth uh, on CBD products because uh, I'm all about doing things that are going to help um, enrich people's lives. And, and as I looked through these products and started using them myself, especially some of the uh, the topical ointments and things that I have for you know arthritis problem I have in my shoulder neck area, I saw the benefits of it. And, I, and I've, I've talked to a lot of different people about what they think about CBD. And, and it, it really uh, can be a very beneficial um, product for, for a lot of people to use. And most people think it has something to do with, with getting high and THC, but no, this has no THC in it. So you're not going to get high from it. You're just going to get the, uh, the other positive effects that you can get from it. So I partnered up with them and, and looking forward to that opportunity and look that partnership that we have together. That's deep. And uh, I want to close out with this one quote from your book. Um, not only did I take every snap and play the game for myself and for my teammates, I always carried the extra burden that I had a responsibility to play the game for others of my race. Honestly, I probably would have been a much better player if I didn't have that burden. But you know what? I carried that burden proudly. Mr. Moon, I think you became a better player because of that burden and you inf you inspired and influenced generations of not just quarterbacks, black quarterbacks, but black youth as well. And I want to thank you so much and the honor for you for for me to interview you um, on the first episode, number one, the inaugural episode of Where They At. Thank you so much, sir, for your time. Really, thanks for uh, for having me on. It was great being able to talk to you about some of these uh, things that have happened throughout my career. And that and that's what I love about where I am now in my life. I can talk about any and everything that's happened in my life and, and not feel uh, ashamed or anything about it because I experienced it, whether it was good or bad. And uh, I, I encourage everybody that when they're dealing with things, talk about it. get them, get it out, um, get some other opinions about it. And, and that's what I did. With, with a lot of the different situations that I went through and being able to do shows like yourself and podcasts like yours gives me another opportunity to just maybe get some other thoughts out of inside that I haven't really addressed by some of the questions that you asked. So I appreciate you having me on. I, I wish you the best of luck with your show and, and continue to keep uh, you know having those type of people on there that, that want to really give back and maybe change other people's lives by what they have experienced and what they have to say. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Pro Football Hall of Famer, Mr. Warren Moon. Mr. Harold Warren Moon. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Take care, my brother.
Thank you all for listening. It's the first episode of Where They At. I want to thank my producers, Nadia Ramdas and Matt McConico. I want to thank uh, this location of um, One of One Productions uh, with Phelan Dennis here in Fort Lee. So I give them the props as well for, for hooking up this beautiful studio. But thank you, Nadia and Matt, for uh, your great production and tutelage. And uh, we'll be back next time with another intriguing episode. And I have a wonderful guest coming up. I won't spoil the surprise, so you have to wait and see who it is. Thank you very much. My name is Debate Owls, and this is Where They're At.